Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Deck the halls with barrels of holly. Hello and welcome to the new Arab Voice. It's Friday the 17th of December. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today, coming to you from London. This will be our final episode of the year. And in honour of that, we have something a bit different. This week we'll be looking back at some of 2021's biggest stories from the Middle East with some of the finest people from the New Arab We'll be starting here. Throughout 2021, Lebanon has faced both a continuation of last year's problems and all new problems. Here to give us a guided tour is the New Arab's Levant correspondent in Beirut, Will Christou. Welcome back to the podcast, Will. Thanks for having me, Hugo. Will, the shadow of the previous year's port blast continues to loom large in the country. Uh, what's the state of the investigation? Um, yeah, so, you know, the, the Beirut port explosion, which left over 200 people dead and 6,000 wounded, was one of the most horrific experiences um, in Beirut's modern history. But three days after the port explosion happened, the prime minister promised that they would have the perpetrators behind bars. Now, we're over a year after the Beirut port explosion happened, and no one has been charged. This year, we've seen basically no progress on the investigation. Uh, The investigation is led by an independent judge named Tarek Bitar. He's the second judge to lead the investigation. The first one was removed um, for allegations of being impartial, because like almost everyone else in the capital city, his house was damaged by the explosion. Um, But this judge has basically refused to bow to any political pressure. And as a result, the political class has systematically blocked his investigation. There has been a flurry of lawsuits launched in order to stop him from uh, bringing in politicians to interrogation, as well as for arrests. So basically, this year, we've seen a lot of movement. So a lot of um, lawsuits coming out, a lot of announcements coming out. But we've yet to see any real progress. You know, there have been a number of politicians who've been wanted for questioning. Uh, One of them, the former finance minister, Ali Hassan Hassan Khalil, uh, as well as the former interior minister, um, both launched launched lawsuits in order to stall their questioning. And these were every single lawsuit that's been filed has been thrown out for lack of jurisdiction. Um, But the result has been that basically no one major has been called in for an interrogation yet. And the port investigation hasn't uh, yielded any progress. Now, what is kind of dangerous is you've got allegations um, from mostly the Hezbollah side that the port investigation is being politicized and that Tariq Bitar is working on behalf of foreign actors. And, you know, I saw this at protests. They were protesting outside the Palace of Justice and they were burning portraits of the U.S. ambassador, Dorothy Shia. Um, saying that she was the one behind the port investigation. And we saw earlier this year that they were actually able to, the political class was able to split um, the families of the victims. And they, they were a pretty powerful lobby group before. They had monthly protests, and they were a very powerful force, invisible force, um, pushing for the investigation to move forward. But following the violent clashes in Beirut in October, the leader of the uh, Beirut port blast victims put out a video saying he no longer supported the investigation, and he no longer well he no, no longer supported the investigating judge. Um, and since then, we've seen a split in the uh, victims' families group and a split in what is or what was the most powerful actor pushing it forward. Lebanon also managed to achieve this year a relative level of success uh, when it finally managed to form a new government. Uh, What happened there, Will? Yeah, I think the key word there, Hugo, is uh, relative. Um, Forming a government after nine months of not being able to do so is not so much a success, but it's something that should have happened a long time ago. 
but still, when the government was formed in September, there was some optimism. And I remember when they finally decided on a new prime minister, me and some other staff were in the presidential palace of Ba'abda when they picked current prime minister Najib Ma'ati to be um, the prime minister of the new government, to form the new government. And there was some optimism there. I remember watching him speak, and at the same time, I was looking at my phone, and the lira was appreciating against the dollar, which shows that there was some confidence being restored. And when they picked Ma'ati, people were saying that, okay, this is a good sign because Ma'ati is a compromised candidate. He is agreeable to all sides, and we can finally end this gridlock that's paralyzed the country for over a year. And they put out very quickly a plan, a technocratic plan, a nine-page plan that said, um, you know, we're going to fix the electricity grid. We're going to start negotiations with the IMF. It was, it was very ambitious. Um, so people that had some cause for hope. But five months later, the hope has been squandered. The Right now, the cabinet has not met for over a month. And the nine-page plan that they put out for their government has not seen a single item fulfilled. The only thing they've managed to do is remove subsidies. Besides that, they haven't moved forward in any noticeable way. So we have a very similar situation to what we had before the government was formed, which was gridlock. And no one is optimistic that uh, much is going to be done before the elections, which are currently scheduled in March. Uh, And amid the failure of the port investigation and the political stagnation, the economy in Lebanon has continued to collapse. What's the state of it currently? Yeah, I think the economy is is the big story and what we should be talking about. Just to give you a quick summary of where we are at right now, the UN said two months ago that over two-thirds of Lebanon's population is in poverty. Um, There's a complete loss in purchasing power with the national currency, the Lebanese lira, losing over 90% of its value over the last two years. Just this week, the lira dropped from around 23,000 lira per dollar to 29,000 lira to the dollar, and people expect it to keep sliding. So, you know, we now have a situation which if you're earning the minimum wage in Lebanon, you're earning a little under $24 a month, which is, of course, completely insufficient to live. And this is an isolated problem. A lot of the country are on these sorts of wages. And so it makes sense when you have the director of the uh, Ministry of Interior saying that the requests for passports to leave this country are outstripping our ability to issue them because nobody sees any future in Lebanon, and they want to get out because they want to provide for their family, and they can't take, you know, the punishing conditions that are here. Amidst all this, the government has yet to pass any sort of social protection program to replace the subsidies that they repealed earlier this year. So, you know, you've got a increasingly bad economic situation and a government that doesn't seem to want to do anything about it. So, Will, has 2021 been the preservation of the status quo in Lebanon, or or is it something different? Unfortunately, Hugo, it's just more of the same status quo, but worse. There's been lots of talk over the past year, lots of headlines, lots of scandals, lots of statements. But when you look at the year in review, nothing has changed. Very little at all has changed. No new laws have been passed. The IMF negotiations to unlock much-needed international aid has not have not started. And we still have a political class that refuses to look at this huge economic crisis realistically. We started this year with little hope and we're leaving with absolutely no hope. Um, so then what can we expect in 2022? You know, I wish I could... <laughs> give you some good news, Hugo, but it seems like we are on the exact same track. Uh, Like I said before, the optimism that we had with the new government is gone. It's stuck in the same sectarian gridlock that we had before the government was formed that characterized the corruption for decades in this country. So there's little hope that they're going to be able to get it together. Now, the one bright spot we have in 2022 is the election coming up in March. It's scheduled for March. It might be in May. Either way, we're having an election in 2022. Now, this is a the first election we have since the 2019 revolution, in which millions took to the streets and demanded the resignation of the government, seeing as embodying the cronyism 
and corruption, which has just crippled Lebanon for decades. So this is an important referendum on the type of Lebanon the Lebanese want going into the future. And I don't have a crystal ball, of course, but so far it doesn't look like the opposition is doing well. The opposition is fragmented. They haven't formed a unified list yet. And in terms of campaigning, they're pretty much silent. So as we're coming up to the 2022 elections, it's looking like those most well-poised to win at the ballot boxes are the very same parties and people that millions of Lebanese took to the streets to protest back in 2019. There's a number of questions we want answers to in 2022. I can't predict what the answers are going to be, but they're things to keep in mind. One huge thing is whether or not the new government, whether it be this government now or the one elected from the 2022 elections, are able to successfully negotiate an aid package with the IMF. Lebanon has acknowledged that it has about $69 billion in financial losses uh, just this week. And that's an important first step to negotiating with the IMF. Now, whether or not next year the government is able to carry this forward and actually hammer out a bailout plan for the country, that's something that remains to be seen. And with that also is whether or not the international community will continue to boycott Lebanon's political class and refuse it to give it political aid. You know, so far, the international community has said we're not giving the government any money unless it makes the necessary political and economic reforms. But the scale of suffering in Lebanon is horrendous. If we see 2022 with no economic or political reforms, it could be that the international community will end up throwing Lebanon a bone anyway. The only thing I can say for certain that's going to happen next year is the punishing economic crisis is going to continue and the suffering of the people is going to deepen. So unfortunately, Hugo, I don't have any good news for 2022, uh, nor do I have any optimism to offer for the country. Well, thank you for that prognosis, Will, and thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Hugo. Always a pleasure. For more in-depth analysis about Lebanon's economic woes, uh, you can listen to episode six of The New Arab Voice and our exclusive interview with Karim Bittar. The past two decades have proved difficult for Afghanistan, to say the least, and 2021 was no different. To guide us through the past 12 months is the New Arab Voices star producer and friend of the podcast, Rosie McCabe. Thanks for joining us, Rosie. Hi, Hugo. Rosie, the Taliban made swift work of their takeover of Afghanistan. How did they recapture the country so quickly? Well, to answer this, we have to go back to 2020, specifically February. This is when the Trump administration signed a deal with the Taliban in Doha. This deal stipulates that if the insurgents cut ties with international terrorist groups, such as al-Qaeda, and agree to hold peace talks with other Afghans, such as the government, Washington would start a phased withdrawal of troops. Now let's cut to 2021. US President Joe Biden decided to carry on with this withdrawal, setting August 31st as his deadline, and then other NATO forces agreed to follow suit. What this did is substantially weaken the strength of the Afghan army. It lowered morale, and it resulted in a vacuum in which the Taliban could seize power, in many cases with little resistance. From May to August, the insurgents launched a strategic guerrilla war. They focused on rural provinces, key border crossings, and then urban centres. There are also multiple instances of negotiated surrenders, for example, with famous warlord like Mohammed Ismail Khan, which substantially reduced the size of opposition forces. This meant that by August 15th, the Taliban were surrounding Kabul and President Ashraf Ghani had fled the country. The insurgents, after years on the sidelines, had won. And how did Western governments, uh, maybe specifically the US and the UK, respond to this crisis? The response of Western governments, specifically leaders in the UK and the US, has been chaotic and unprepared. Despite this, both leaders have maintained that it was time to leave Afghanistan and that the evacuation efforts following the fall of Kabul were a success. Last night in Kabul, the United States ended 20 years of war in Afghanistan, the longest war in American history. 
I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. I mean, most of us saw the images of Afghans running alongside a US plane in an attempt to get out of Afghanistan, or pictures of babies being handed to troops across barbed wire. The tens of thousands of people stuck under Taliban rule would question the success of these missions, and what the 20-year war achieved. You've also had Western military officials, politicians and civil service members slam their governments over the crisis. Two top US military officials said America should have kept a few thousand troops in the country, and that tactical and intelligence failings led to a chaotic withdrawal. A UK Foreign Office whistleblower called the evacuation dysfunctional, saying that young employees with little experience were making life and death decisions on their own. So what does the new Taliban look like and how are they ruling? There's been a lot of talk of a Taliban 2.0, with discussions about whether the group has changed compared to the 1990s when public executions and the repression of women were commonplace. I mean, yes, the Taliban are older, well, some of them, and more media savvy. They've launched a sophisticated media campaign and have tried to project a fresh image of themselves as defenders of women's rights. They've also announced an amnesty across the country. However, many have called this a charm offensive. In September, the Taliban announced an all-male government mostly made up of Pashtun tribes. The BBC reported in December that teenage girls continue to be excluded from school and may not be allowed to return until March next year. Human Rights Watch said the Taliban have killed or forcibly disappeared more than 100 former security members, despite the amnesty. I personally have heard stories from people who feel trapped and fear for their lives in Afghanistan. I think this answer is best summarised by former Afghan Vice President Anrullah Saleh. The Taliban have not changed, he said. They've just become savvier at deceiving. What's life been like for the people of Afghanistan following the takeover? Difficult, in one word. Unsurprisingly, the insurgents are better at coordinating a guerrilla war than they are at running a country. Already, Afghanistan was an aid-dependent nation, awash with corruption. Now, the economy is in freefall. International donors evaporated, assets have been frozen, and basic services crumbled. There's been a mass exodus of skilled professionals out of the country, and over 500,000 people have been displaced this year alone. The country is now on the brink of starvation. Some 23 million people face extreme levels of hunger, according to the UN. Many people, who have never needed humanitarian help before, such as um, government workers, pensioners, they're now relying on handouts from foreign agencies. Your life is troubling and uncertain for so many in Afghanistan right now. So 2021 in Afghanistan, was it the status quo or something different? Something different. This year has been historic for Afghanistan, and not in a good way. Changes over the last 20 years, such as more girls in school, women in work, have been obliterated, and the country has been plunged into chaos. And 2022? What's next? Well, the future of Afghanistan is bleak. At this point, hunger and destitution is likely to kill more people than war over the last few decades, which is pretty shocking. I think outside help is needed to avoid further disaster. This means foreign governments and international donors must restore aid and find ways of working with existing state structures, and perhaps even the Taliban. Otherwise, famine will take hold in the coming months. There may also be a growing gap between Taliban leadership and what happens on the ground. We've seen this already in relation to Afghan flags. Different flags were allowed by insurgents, but people have been attacked on the streets for waving Afghan flags. So perhaps there'll be a reckoning over splinter groups, perhaps the reckoning will enforce discipline, or it will just lead to further disaster. Thanks for joining us, Rosie. Thanks for having me. Head over to the New Arabs website and you can read Staza Selaknin's in-depth analysis about whether Afghanistan could transform into a narco-state. The Gulf has been as busy as ever this year, continuing their tradition of spending vast amounts of money while also contending with a global drop in oil demand, which hit the balances of a number of countries. Joining us to discuss 2021 in the Gulf 
is the New Arab's Deputy Editor of Features, the jack of all trades and master of many others, Benjamin Ashraf. Thanks for joining us, Ben. Thanks for having me. Ben, one of the biggest stories from the UAE this year was the case of the missing princess. Uh, What did we learn? Indeed it was. In fact, for a while it ticked all the hallmarks of a global press sensation. Now we're talking, of course, of the disappearance of Princess Latifa, daughter of Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid al-Makoum, who is the current Vice President and Prime Minister of the United Arab Emirates. Now, the reason why I say it captured the attention of the global press corps was in large part due to the almost cinematic features surrounding her abduction. And this was coupled with the secretive, isolatory nature of the lives of the UAE royal family and the political legal influence that they wield. Princess Latifa had not been seen in the public eye since 2018, after an attempt to flee the Emirate was fought by UAE commandos off the coast of India. This was according to friends and the UK-based rights group detained in Dubai. Yeah, it was only this year, on February the 15th, that we learned from leaked video messages uh, dated from around 2019 that were provided to BBC programme Panorama that since her attempted escape, she'd been held hostage in a villa which had been converted into a makeshift prison and five guards were holding a captive. With her friends unable to contact her, rights groups began to voice concern of her welfare. Um, and then two days after the programme's airing, both the United Nations Human Rights Body and then British Foreign Minister Dominic Raab both waded into the saga with statements. We raised our concerns uh, about this situation uh, in light of, of the disturbing video evidence um, that emerged this week. Uh, we requested more information and clarification about uh, Sheikh Latifa's current situation. It should be noted that this isn't the first time a woman known to Sheikh Mohammed had sought protection. Infamously in 2019, his ex-wife, Princess Haya bin al-Hussein, notably of the royal Hashemite family in Jordan, fled to London where she applied for a forced marriage protection order relating to her children. She was subsequently inundated with legal and private intimidation before winning a case brought to the British High Court which allowed her to remain in London. With Latifa, months passed with no proof of life evidence being provided by the UAE. And so began a fascinating, if troubling, geopolitical hide-and-seek battle, which, as we know, captivated the world over. Despite Emirati silence on the issue, the footage appeared to have a positive impact, correct? Yes, I'd agree to a large extent it did. Um, governmental, public and organisational pressure was maintained. And um, as we know in this, in this world of social media, there's a, there was an influx of social media sleuths that helped keep the story in the public eye. Now, such pressure led to a development in the story around mid-May, with a photo surfacing on Instagram of what looked like Princess Latifa, who was pictured at a Dubai shopping mall. Friends of the princess later confirmed to the BBC that the woman in the picture was indeed Princess Latifa. Now, the story, as it was reported, came to an eventual close on the 23rd of June, with Princess Latifa, through her lawyers, releasing a statement for the first time in three years, saying that she was able to travel days after a picture surfaced of her at an airport in Spain. She told international media outlet Reuters, and and I quote, that she'd recently visited three European countries on holiday with a friend. Now, of course, it's heartening that Princess Latifa seems to be alive and well. But for those more attuned to the politics and the inward workings of the UAE establishment, a question remains as to what extent her statement was her own and is is she operating under her own free will? We must again bear in mind that Latifa still has not spoken publicly, only through her lawyers. While in the UAE there were concerns of a woman being detained, uh, in Saudi Arabia there was some good news with the release of a prominent woman. That's right, Hugo. Uh, Yeah, this year in February we witnessed the release of prominent Saudi political activist Lujain al-Hahloul, who is um, perhaps best known for spearheading the campaign to legalise driving for women in Saudi Arabia. Now, for for the world over, that piece of legislation had blighted public perception of of the Gulf country in the West. Al-Hahloul was sentenced under a vindictive counter-terrorism legislation, which charged her on such counts as agitating for change and pursuit of a foreign agenda. And naturally, such charges caused international uproar. Whilst incarcerated, Lujain launched a hunger strike to protest her imprisonment, joining a cohort of female activists in reporting to Saudi Arabia that she had been both tortured and sexually assaulted by masked men during her interrogation. Nonetheless, after sustained pressure, Al-Hahloul served a truncated sentence and served only three years of an initial six-in sentence after the judge decided to suspend part of her sentence, taking into consideration the time spent inside. The move to release Al-Hahloul should be viewed as part of wider scrutiny of Saudi Arabia by the United States, 
having enjoyed an unprecedentedly strong relationship under previous Premier Don- Donald Trump. Joe Biden has vowed to reassess the U.S.-Saudi partnership with great emphasis on calling out human rights issues. Before I begin, I have some welcome news that the Saudi government has released a prominent human rights activist uh, from prison. She was a powerful advocate for women's rights, and releasing her was the right thing to do. However, it should be noted that despite being released, she remains under strict conditions, including a five-year travel ban and three years of probation. And in March, an appeal made by her lawyers to rescind her travel ban was rejected by a Saudi judge. So whilst, of course, Hugo, there are certainly points of optimism from the saga, the reality of the Saudi system leaves a bittersweet taste. Mm. And uh, what else has been dominating the Gulf in 2021? Well, Saudi Arabia's own forever war in Yemen tragically lingers on with little sign of resolution. This year is the sixth of the conflict and the Houthis are stronger than ever with Saudi Arabia failures allowing what would have been previously amateur rebels to become seasoned fighters in the conflict. The war, according to UN body Ocha, has already claimed the lives of 233,000 people, including 131,000 from indirect causes, such as lack of food, health services and infrastructure. At the time of speaking, 16 million Yemenis are now close to starvation, with the country now categorically the world's worst humanitarian crisis. This year, the conflict um, has largely been fought over insurgency movements in the in the province of Marib, um, after Houthi attacks on Saudi oil bases have dis- disturbed the latter's supply chains. Um, we must make it clear that the need for the conflict to come to a hard stop has never been more pressing. Has 2021 been the status quo for the Gulf or, or something different? And also, what are your predictions for 2022? Well, this year has been interesting because the Gulf, of course, marked the 40th anniversary of the um, Gulf Cooperation Council, or GCC. Um, It's clear that the remnants of the Abraham Accords and the the ensuing normalisation with Israel continues to be a a key source of friction amongst the Gulf countries. Whilst the council was initially formed in order to create a unified and effective foreign policy, Um, Since its establishment, there have been significant policy rifts, um, particularly over the phenomenon of Sunni Islamism and a resurgent Iran. Of course, pandering from Bahrain and the UAE towards Israel has become a special point of disagreement. In contrast, Qatar has been particularly vocal in its support of the Palestinian cause, with large rallies in May to protest the then Israeli assault on Gaza. Um, outside the arena of foreign policy, 2021 has been the year of COP26, which was the, the global climate change summit held in Glasgow. Um, this, is, this is significant because the Gulf region continues to contribute significantly to global CO2 emissions. So I'd say both the factor of um, normalisation with Israel and climate change summits are what will dominate the next few years indeed. Whilst initiatives from the Gulf have been, ra- have been raised in this past year, including Saudi Arabia's plan to build a city designed to run on renewable energy and the UAE making major investments in rainmaking, also known as cloud seeding, both of these countries' exports of fossil fuels accelerate global warming. This will lead to a negative feedback loop for less wealthy co- Arab countries and the global climate at large. Their continued reliance on oil lies in contrast with their soft power ambitions to hold future climate summits. And so for future, they must start asking themselves what more they can do to slow global warming. Thank you for joining us, Ben, and sharing your insight. Thank you very much for having me. You can go back to episode 13 of The New Arab Voice to hear how oil-producing countries, Saudi Arabia in particular, are coping with the effects of climate change, or episode 14 to hear our interview with Detained in Dubai. Twenty twenty one proved to be a difficult year for Palestine, with adversity upon adversity, and also marked the year that Israeli policy was officially branded as apartheid in a landmark report. Here to discuss the biggest stories of the year from the West Bank and Gaza is New Arab journalist and a returning podcast friend, it's Diana Agul. Hi Diana, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. The dominating story in Palestine this year was the attempt by Israeli settlers to uh, forcibly expel Palestinian families from their homes in the East Jerusalem neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah, uh, among others. How did events unfold over the year? 
In October 2020, the Israeli Magistrates Court in Jerusalem made a decision to evict 12 Palestinian families after an illegal settler organisation claimed ownership of their homes, which meant 550 Palestinians in the neighbourhood of Sheikh Jarrah are at risk of homelessness. Sheikh Jarrah residents then started a campaign which by April gained global traction after protests against the move intensified, which then led to the international community um, learning about other areas in East Jerusalem, such as Silwan, which is also at risk of being wiped out. By May, international solidarity for Palestine increased after Israel decided to launch a deadly offensive on the besieged Gaza Strip, whilst Palestinians in East Jerusalem told Israel's Supreme Court that they had not reached terms with settlers trying to take their homes. By August, Israel's Supreme Court proposed to have Sheikh Jarrah residents remain in their homes under a so-called protected resident status. This supposedly ensured that they would not face eviction in the near future in exchange of them having to pay a so-called rent to the Nahlat Shimon settler organisation. This was refused by Sheikh Jarrah residents in November. A statement by the residents read... This refusal stems from our conviction in our right to our homes and our land, despite the absence of any concrete guarantees to ensure Palestinian existence in Jerusalem by anybody. Palestinians faced further challenges when access to the Al-Aqsa Mosque was closed off for them. Um, What happened, Diana, at the Holy Site and why were Palestinians targeted by Israeli forces? So in mid-April, at the start of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, occupying Israeli forces prevented the call to prayer and a few days later summoned Sheikh Omar al-Kiswani, the director of Al-Aqsa Mosque. Israel also banned gatherings at Damascus Gate, a popular socialising spot for Palestinians in Al-Aqsa compound. On May the 7th, a particularly dark day, more than 200 Palestinians were wounded when Israeli police raided Al-Aqsa Mosque as Muslim worshippers were holding evening prayers on the last Friday of Ramadan. As well as Ramadan being the holiest day in Islam, Friday is considered a holy day. So for Palestinians, it was a double blow by Israeli forces. Police fired rubber bullets and stun grenades at worshippers in the mosque, which led Palestinians to respond by hurling rocks at the occupying forces. The threat of forced expulsions and the attacks at the Al-Aqsa Mosque also drew a response from Hamas, kicking off what could be the darkest moment of 2021 for Palestine and Gaza. What happened there, Diana? Hamas said they fired rockets into Israel in reactions to the attacks on Al-Aqsa Mosque, along with the expulsion of residents in occupied East Jerusalem. On the 10th of May, Israel launched a deadly 11-day offensive, which killed 256 Palestinians, including 66 children and 40 women, along with 13 people in Israel. It was a brutal assault, which brought back memories of the 2014 conflict for some. The bombing of civilian areas is pretty standard practice for Israeli warplanes, but one of the conflict's most alarming attacks occurred on May 14th. That day, an Israeli airstrike destroyed a high-rise building in Gaza City that housed the offices of the Associated Press, Al Jazeera and other media outlets, with the journalists inside given just one hour's warning to collect their belongings and evacuate the premise. Israeli Defence Minister Benny Gantz claimed that Hamas infrastructure operated from the building, while an Israeli general went as far as to claim that journalists were drinking tea with Hamas, a claim that was strongly refuted and later withdrawn by Gantz. The brutal battle ended when a ceasefire was brokered by Egypt after the US pressured Israel to wind down the offensive on the 21st of May. It's worth noting that while the most recent round of fighting ended in May, the blockade of Gaza continued throughout the year and is still in place today. The blockade makes it difficult to secure building materials needed to repair and rebuild what was destroyed by Israeli airstrikes. 
One week after the 11-day assault, the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, Michelle Bachelet, said that Israel's actions could constitute war crimes. Israeli attacks resulted in extensive civilian deaths and injuries, as well as large-scale destruction and damage to civilian objects. This includes governmental buildings, residential homes and apartment buildings, international humanitarian organizations, medical facilities, media offices, and roads connecting um, essential services such as hospitals. The result was their partial... Later in August of this year, Human Rights Watch also released a report which said that the Israeli bombing of the AP building could also constitute a war crime. However, it remains unlikely that any meaningful action will happen. Uh, So, Diana, has 2021 been the status quo for Palestine or something different? In terms of international solidarity for Palestine, the movement grew rapidly over the summer, but it quickly quietened down by the autumn. This is something we see regularly, but it happened on a larger scale, especially in the Western world. The normalisation deal between Israel and the UAE meant that the Palestinian cause was sidelined even more so by Arab state actors, but popular sentiments for liberation remain and became globalised thanks to social media. And 2022? What do you think we'll see? Not much will change, unfortunately. Nothing can get better for Palestinians unless structural change in ending the occupation takes place, which seems unlikely for the foreseeable future. Fascinating insight as ever, Diana. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you want to hear about the ongoing Palestinian resistance against Israeli apartheid and the importance of Nakba Day, uh, you can go back and listen to our very first episode of the season. Or if you'd like to hear about the historic ties between the US and Israel and how it has compounded Palestinian suffering, then you can go back and listen to episode two. It has been a fairly busy year for Iran, with a change of leadership both in the country and having to contend with changes in leadership abroad. Diplomatic efforts have been focused on a resumption of the Iran nuclear deal, also known as the JCPOA, and hopes of ending US-imposed sanctions. Joining us to discuss 2021 in Iran is the new Arabs, Nick McAlpin. Hi Nick, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Hugo. Nick, what's the status of the Iran nuclear deal negotiations? Negotiations to rescue the deal have been underway in Vienna since April, uh, though this hasn't been accomplished yet. Earlier in the year, we saw increased efforts as the newly elected Biden administration sought to make progress with the moderate government of Hassan Rouhani before his term ended. It must be said, this issue is extremely complicated. Even the format of the discussions in Vienna is not straightforward. You've got the US participating, but only indirectly, through mediators, In fact, the US aren't even allowed to be in the same building as the other negotiating parties. This is since the talks are taking place as a meeting of the parties to the agreement, and the US is no longer one of them. So that will doubtless have played some role. Early efforts were unsuccessful, as we know, and then the negotiations had a five-month break beginning in June after the first six rounds of discussions. The seventh round of talks started up on November 29th, and Raisi's Iran has played hardball. Talks paused on December the 3rd and a high-level State Department figure claimed on December 4th that Tehran had turned away from the concessions it made during past rounds of negotiations and was seeking additional commitments from others. Crucially, an anonymous high-level figure with the Islamic Republic on December 5th asserted America's hesitance to, quote, give up sanctions altogether is the main challenge to the progress of the talks, end quote, according to the Tehran-based Tasneem news agency. However, on December 9th, American Special Representative for Iran, Robert Merley, told Al Jazeera that Washington, quote, would lift all of the sanctions that are inconsistent with the JCPOA, end quote, if the agreement was rescued. That same day, December 9th, discussions resumed again. There have been some contradictory reports about Iran's stance and comments on what's happening, but it seems like Iran is now willing to accept what was agreed during the first six rounds of negotiations by the Islamic Republic's previous administration. Although there is less optimism around the talks, the United States have been keen to remind Iran that they could come back. Uh, I have to tell you, recent moves, recent rhetoric, um, don't give us uh, a lot of cause for, um, uh, for optimism. Uh, but uh, even though the hour is getting very late, it is not too late 
for Iran to reverse course and engage meaningfully uh, in an effort to return to mutual compliance with the JCPOA. That was the voice of U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Uh, Nick, how likely is it that the 2015 nuclear deal will be restored by the end of the year? And uh, if not, what happens next? Well, by the end of the year seems unlikely. Uh, We've not got long left in 2021, obviously. The holiday period's upon us, and despite some recent optimism from diplomats, there's still a long, long way to go. As for what happens next, there are really only two options. Either the talks continue next year until a deal is reached, or one or more parties involved in the negotiations decides to pull out. At that point, you're likely to see an escalation, increased sanctions for one. If no deal can be reached, then it does also seem likely that we'll see further clandestine attacks that target nuclear infrastructure. We witnessed such an attack in April when the Natanz nuclear facility was hit by an explosion, and in September when Mohsen Fakhrizadeh, the father of Iran's nuclear weapons program, was assassinated. Israel was held responsible for both of these attacks, although they never claimed responsibility. Mm. Iran has also had a difficult year when it comes to water shortages. How serious have these shortages been? Oh, incredibly serious. Tehran, the Islamic Republic's capital, has been facing its most serious drought in 50 years, according to a local water deputy director. Speaking to the Iranian students' news agency in October, he explained the amount of rain each month had fallen by 97% in 2020. Overall, 97% of people living in the Islamic Republic are impacted by long-term drought, according to a drought official. The country has been facing drought for about 20 years, so it's nothing new. However, the issue has become worse and Iran's population has increased. There's also the question of poor direction. Some leaders have sought to benefit electorally by letting farmers grow plants that use excessive amounts of water, according to the Financial Times. And how has the Iranian population responded to these water shortages? In one word, protests. Back in July, there were demonstrations made up largely of farmers in Iran's Khuzestan province, which has the greatest number of Arabs of any area of the country. Then, in November, in Isfahan city, demonstrators concerned about the shortages turned out in their thousands. Though the country's energy minister said sorry for the lack of water available for agriculture, it comes as no surprise that there were arrests and reprisals against demonstrators. Concerns were also raised about abuses during the July protests, though Iran denied these claims. So briefly, has 2021 been the status quo for Iran or something different? I think we have seen a shift in a couple of ways. Some of that relates to Iranian politics and some of it is in shifting circumstances worldwide. The election of Joe Biden as US president opened the door for talks on returning to the Iran nuclear deal this year. Internally, there was the election of hardliner Ibrahim Raisi as president a clear shift towards greater conservatism and rigidity in Iran's positioning. We've seen that at the nuclear deal talks, where Iran under Raisi, at least initially, attempted to reverse past concessions made during negotiations and increase its demands. And your predictions for 2022? Well, with Iran, it's always hard to say. Given all the international, diplomatic and military disputes the Islamic Republic is involved in, there are many moving parts. I think what we can say is that Iran will remain in the spotlight, even if the Iran nuclear deal issue is closed. Tehran is still going to be involved in proxy conflicts with Saudi Arabia, although, to be fair, there has been some easing of tensions between Tehran and Riyadh recently. Um, Obviously, you're also going to have Iran and Israel still at loggerheads. Human rights issues in Iran are also still going to be there. And I don't think it's likely the water issue will go away either. Thanks for joining us, Nick. Thank you for having me, Hugo. If you want to hear more about this year's presidential election in Iran and what the ascension of Ibrahim Raisi means for the political landscape, you can go back and listen to episode three of The New Arab Voice. The civil war in Syria has continued to rumble on, with peace initiatives continuing to fail. To take us through 2021 in Syria is the New Arab's senior news editor, Paul McLaughlin. Hello, Paul. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Um, Syria passed a particularly grim milestone this year, marking 10 years since the start of the civil war. What's the state of the conflict in the country? Um, There have been some deadly episodes of shelling and bombing in Idlib, but overall I would say the situation in northwest Syria, for example, has been probably less violent than previous ones. Um, The ceasefire in Idlib is largely held. 
Although there have been some very bloody episodes, such as the Arriha massacre in October, when 11 civilians were killed by regime shelling. But in the south, it was a different story. We had Dara province, which um, saw an increase in insurgent attacks on regime militias. And um, there was also assassinations on former rebels who had reconciled with the regime. This led to an uprising in the late summer, and um, there was clashes between the regime and rebel forces, including um, shelling and sieges on Dar el Balad and other areas. But largely the truce in, um, since then has held, and the rebels and armed locals have handed over weapons, and there has been a settlement with people wanted by the regime. But the question now really is whether the ceasefire will hold. In the northeast, where the, um, the Syrian democratic forces have been able to consolidate their control in the area, but they've had to deal with the spread of COVID, the, a very dire economic situation. And these have probably been the biggest concerns for the autonomous administration there. Um, one of the other big episodes in the, that region was the build-up of Turkish forces, and there was fears of a new offensive. That didn't happen, but it did create a lot of fears in that area. In the regime areas, it's really pretty much just a continued economic problems and the spread of COVID, and really we don't know the scale of the outbreak yet. Syrians also, uh, quote-unquote, went to the polls this year. Uh, can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, they had the presidential elections in May, which Assad unsurprisingly won. Um, the background was that Syrians overseas, who were most likely to oppose Assad, didn't take part in the election, and the opposition were also excluded from the vote. So it was widely regarded as a sham. The other runners against Assad were um, basically loyalists, regime loyalists, and were there just to present an illusion of competition to Assad. But everyone really knew it wasn't a re- proper election, and it was ultimately a pantomime to mobilise lo- regime loyalists and present some vestige of democracy to the outside world. The Europeans and the Americans rejected the poll. They said it was illegitimate, and really it seemed to be a further setback for peace efforts in ending the war. For Syrians outside the country, they faced further troubles. Um, how did a decision by the Danish government affect Syrian refugees this year? So the Danish government earlier this year, they ruled that it was safe for Syrian refugees in the country to return back to Syria in areas under regime control, notably Damascus. It's worth noting that while there isn't open conflict in places like Damascus, um, the refugees refugees face a very severe chance of persecution from the Assad regime. And this can include forced conscription, imprisonment and torture and even death. When I spoke to the Danish Refugee Council at the start of the year when this happened, they said that basically the deportations to Syria were not imminent, but they would upturn life for those affected by it. Many of these people have been living and working in Denmark for years and will now have to move to squalid deportation centres indefinitely. This includes students and youngsters who speak Danish as a first language and know absolutely nothing about life in Syria, only Denmark. The issue has seen Danish, Syrian and Danish activists unite to launch campaigns and mass protests to prevent any potential deportations. Uh, the goal of today's demo is really to show the, the government that there is a, a huge uh, group of people in Denmark, a very wide constituency that is deeply ashamed of uh, the retreat that we are currently seeing from uh, refugee rights in Denmark. So, I mean, I think it's very puzzling for most Danes why our government seems to want to take the lead in, in forcing people back into the hands of a dictator. That was the voice of Tim White, Secretary General of Action Aid Denmark, speaking at a demonstration in Copenhagen in May. Uh, so, Paul, has 2021 been the status quo for Syria or something different? I think the COVID-19 outbreak and financial considerations have kept the regime busy this year, and along with external pressures. From what I've been told, Russia is putting more pressure on the Syrian regime, and this could have contributed to the situation in Idlib remaining largely quiet. But there are still big questions over how much influence Putin actually has over Assad. Um, the situation in Dara and Derezor has also showed that there's some real desire for the regime to consolidate control over territories it now controls. And 2022, what do we think that holds for Syria? Well, with Syria, it's also always very difficult to predict what will happen next. Part of Assad's success in the war in foreign relations in general has been his unpredictability. And it makes it very difficult to double-guess what he'll do next. 
I think there'll be other attempts by the regime to consolidate control over parts of Syria, which are outside its um, control at the moment. And also in areas where there's a degree of autonomy, such as in Dara. Um, I think the US resolve in the northeast remains strong for now. And Turkey and Russia wish to continue the ceasefire in Idlib. So we might have a repeat of 2020 where it remains largely quiet on these fronts. Um, the COVID-19 and the economic situation have the potential to keep the regime bogged down really for 2022. But I think overall it's probably never a wise idea to predict what will happen in Syria next, particularly as there's no real peace initiative in the moment. Thanks for joining us, Paul. Thanks a lot for having me. If you want to hear more, you can go back into the New Arab Voices archive to our special episode from earlier this year, which marked 10 years of the conflict in Syria. President Sisi's rule in Egypt continued for another year, and he stretched his diplomatic muscles in foreign countries, meeting with a number of foreign leaders to review 2021 in Egypt, We're joined by the New Arab's managing editor, Kareem Trabulsi. Hi, Kareem. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. Kareem, earlier this year, the world came to a stop when a ship got stuck in the Suez Canal. Uh, What happened there? Uh, So this story may seem like a lifetime ago, but it was only in March that the Ever Given got stuck in the Suez Canal for six days. The 220,000-ton ship, which is the size of around four football pitches, tried to pass through a narrow stretch of canal. The canal has been state-owned in Egypt since 1956, when Nasser nationalized it. Some say it was strong winds that blew the boat off course, but some others say it was human error. Uh, Actually, the New York Times had an investigation, and it was found that it was a combination of both. Either way, the ship originally bound for Rotterdam in the Netherlands and operated by a Taiwanese transport company, the Evergreen Marine, jammed the critical waterway on March 23. Uh, This provided endless comedy and memes uh, on the internet, but it wasn't so funny for the worldwide shipping industry, which was already reeling from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, What does this event tell us about the importance and fragility of global trade? Well, as you know, uh, Hugo, the incident had a huge impact on global supply chains, exposing how important they are, but also how just one incident can disrupt the whole system. It's estimated that up to $10 billion worth of trade was frozen each day because the Ever Given grounded to a halt. Uh, There were about 400 ships backlogged behind it in the canal because of the incident, including uh, a number of oil tankers. And as a result, oil prices rocketed in in the following days. Uh, Of course, the Suez Canal remains a critical route for ships carrying goods from Asia and the Middle East to Europe and and the Americas. Uh, But the main lesson experts wanted the industry to learn was the risks of using these huge, ultra-large vessels through very tight spaces. So the questions uh, they face now, does that infrastructure need to change or do the ships need to be smaller? Or is it time that we as consumers and businesses worldwide reduce our dependence on foreign sourced goods and think locally instead of globally, given the carbon footprint of the shipping industry? Mm. Human rights in Egypt are a perennial issue. Um, What particular cases regarding human rights and human rights abuses have stood out this year in Egypt? Well, Egypt is is really notorious for uh, its human rights record ever since the uh, 2011 January Revolution and the military uh, takeover that uh, followed two years after. Uh, So there are lots of cases we can talk about, including the the activists who are still detained from from that uh, period, uh, such as Ala Abdel Fattah. I think for this year, we we can talk about two cases that highlight the the wider issue. Uh, The first one is, is Patrick Zaki. Zaki is an Egyptian researcher who was doing a postgraduate degree in gender studies in Italy. He previously worked as a researcher for an Egyptian human rights uh, group. So uh, on his way back uh, to Egypt, he was detained uh, at the airport in February 2020 and then charged with, quote, disseminating false news, unquote, as well as inciting protests. And this is probably due to his previous work and articles he wrote reportedly about the rights of the country's Christian Coptic minority. Amnesty International said he was beaten and tortured while he was detained. 
Recently, uh, the Egyptian, uh, an Egyptian court ordered his release. That was on 7 December. His mother said she jumped for joy on hearing the news. But it's not really clear whether he was actually released or just a court order. Zaki's case captured international attention, particularly in Italy, where he was studying. Uh, remember that in Italy, they had an outstanding case with Egypt with the murder of uh, Giulio Regini, an Italian national who was uh, first detained and then killed in Egypt. Regini was a Cambridge student researching trade unions, unions in Egypt, but he was abducted and murdered in January 2016. Uh, and then in December, four Egyptian security of officers were charged uh, by an Italian court for his murder. How have the international community reacted to Egypt's human rights abuses? Well, we have seen this year attempts to hold Egypt to account and and Egyptian perpetrators. However, human rights groups say uh, these efforts do not go uh, far enough in condemning the crimes committed. For example, Italian prosecutors, as I just said, have charged Egyptian security uh, officers uh, for a genie's murder. And diplomatic ties between Italy and Egypt had soured over, over that case and Zaki's case. However, the Italian ambassador to Cairo is still in post and the government is still trading with, with the Egyptian government, including uh, lucrative arms deals. Uh, the US, despite Biden on the campaign trail saying uh, very harsh things about Egypt's president, uh, Sisi, and then the government recently saying it would, it would withhold millions in aid this year, over the human rights concerns. It continues to send millions to the Egyptian government in counterterrorism, border security, non-proliferation, and human rights watch saying not enough is being done. The EU passed a resolution in December last year urging member states to consider imposing targeting, targeted restrictions on Egypt. But then in March this year, the European Council decided to lift restrictive measures against nine Egyptian individuals. As Dr. Sahar Khamis wrote in the New Arab uh, Opinion uh, section this week, Egypt has adopted a few measures, but they are tokenistic measures, such as launching a national strategy for human rights and uh, highlighting new prisons that are more humane. But yet tens of thousands of political prisoners remain behind bars. And Western governments, given Egypt's role in protecting their interests in the region, have decided to go little beyond rhetoric on human rights. Uh, So 2021 in Egypt, was it a preservation of the status quo or was it something different? Well, very little has changed in Egypt. Uh, Regional foes of Egypt, including Turkey, are coming to terms with the fact that the military regime is going nowhere. And even Western governments that had strongly criticised the Egyptian government are returning to a real politic approach vested in security and economic interests with no real concerns for democracy or human rights. And for its part, the Egyptian government is making only small cosmetic reforms. And what do we think 2022 holds for Egypt? The Nile crisis with Ethiopia will continue to be the main issue facing Egypt, with very few policy options at its disposal. But Ethiopia's civil war may hinder any progress in negotiations. Yet they may also weaken the hand of the government of Abiy Ahmed and expose him to military and economic pressures. We can also expect Egypt to continue to be an important broker in Palestinian affairs while ties with previous foes in the MENA region are improving. Thanks for joining us, Kareem. My pleasure. It certainly was a busy year for Egypt, but the rest of North Africa was also eventful. You can go back and listen to episode 8 to learn about the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam, episode 9 to hear about the coup in Tunisia, episode 12 to hear about the 10 years of conflict in Libya, and our last episode about the ongoing coup in Sudan. Thank you for listening to this episode and season of The New Arab Voice. This episode featured Rosie McCabe, Paul McLaughlin, Will Christou, Diana Agul, Benjamin Ashraf, Bream Trabulsi and Nick McAlpin. Our theme music was by Omar El Phil. This season was produced by me, Hugo Goodridge, Guy Karamatsa, Rosie McCabe, Nick McAlpin and Aisha Aldris. The new Arab Voice will be back in 2022. In the meantime, you can go back and listen to any of our previous episodes wherever you find your podcasts. 
We want to thank you for being with us for this season of the new Arab Voice. We appreciate your support. You can check out our Instagram page and Twitter account, both at the new Arab Voice, for additional content. You can subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, and you can also rate and review, which helps us spread the word. We wish you all a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, and a Happy New Year. And don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all the latest news from the region. 